tonight on Arena. A new concert movie of Beyonce's Renaissance tour and a new documentary about sculptor and woodcaver Imogen Stewart. Five one double five one is the text. You can tweet the program at RTE Arena. Imogen from the Heart is a new TV documentary going out on RTE One this Thursday evening. It's about Imogen Stewart, the sculptor and wood carver. It's made by her grandson, the filmmaker Emile Denine. Imogen was born in Berlin in the late nineteen twenties. Has lived most of her adult life, however, in Ireland. A fateful meeting with Ian Stewart, fellow sculpture student, brought her to live in Lara Castle in Glendalough with his mother Isolt gone and his 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 grandmother Maud gone. Imogen's art can be found all round Ireland from St Brendan the Navigator in Bantry County Cork to Panger Bon at Horus and Uchthron in Dublin's Phoenix Park. Delighted that Imogen is with us in studio this evening along with her grandson Emile Dineen. I, I, I was interested Emile first of all that the first thing we see of Imogen in the documentary is her working. That's that's hardly a surprise. Um, a pretty prolific uh, sculptor, wood carver, and constant worker is your grandmother. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And that was always the the idea of the film was to capture the uh, person I know who is somebody who's always working, one way or another. Yeah, and and it struck me you speak immediately, Imogen, in the documentary about how important the work is to you. That it's not that you, you're doing it, you know because you, you just have to do it. I have to do it, that's right. I mean, I started when I was not even 20, when I was 19, and I started, and I had a very good teacher, a professor who used to work originally in Berlin, in Berlin, and now, after the war, we lived not in Berlin anymore. He didn't either live in Berlin. He was a retired Bavarian, mm. a Bavarian, and he had a big, he had a very well-known name in Berlin, and now he was back, and I was his one and only student. Just you? At the beginning. Ah, right. At the beginning, only the student. So it was, you couldn't have had a better teacher. And it was it always for you, Imogen, was it always sculpting? Was it always carving? Was it that kind of digging and <laughs> pulling at things that interested you? Yeah, it. I was interested in the very beginning, a wonderful man who would be able to tell you exactly what to do and what kind, what he was doing. It was wonderful. You really, you couldn't do better. And and it really is a, a, a obvious in in the film, as I saw it this afternoon, Emil, that w- when Imogen is working like that, the concentration is really noticeable, and the sheer joy uh, of watching her do that. But this is a film; it struck me as much about family as it is about Imogen Stewart, sculptor and woodcarver. Well, I suppose that's the funny thing. I I didn't I didn't come to making this film by being a great fan of Imogen Stewart the sculptor who everybody knows I came as her grandson you know I was uh, I used to climb under the hedge and go up to her studio we lived just on the other side of the garden Mm. um, in my early years and I'd go there and help her sometimes with some of her works and 
I had my own little chisel and I do some carving as well. <laughs> but um, yeah. so I, it, it's, um, yeah, I approached the documentary. I was visiting Imogen with my kids and with my cousin Sam mm. Horler, who's also an artist. We'd be visiting her and then I'd just have my camera with me a lot of the time. And uh, so it emerged out of that, really. Yeah. And, and there are there are parallels here because you were there with your two daughters and within the film itself, we see lots of footage of Imogen and her sister as young, as young children in Berlin, in many films, and many pictures taken by your own father. He was a, it seems as if he never was without a camera in his hand. Imogen. Yeah, yeah, he he was an amateur photographer, but he was so good. He had, you can see some in Emil's film. He was really good. He loved it also. And we had a lot of films. He made an awful lot of films. And so I'm always used to, from babyhood onwards, that photographing. Mm. And you had to make a smile. You had to smile. <laughs> I learned that very early on. And and the the period of time, uh, particularly that this deals with, there's one section where we see you and the family uh, looking at a, a building in, I think it's in Dresden that you are, uh, perhaps you're in Berlin. In Berlin. Time. Yeah. And your your grandmother appears at the window and your sheer delight at at seeing her is, is very noticeable yeah. in the film itself. But there was a sadness around your grandmother and even seeing her come to the window was a surprise. Well, I mean, that was in Germany altogether. If you have any Jewish blood, that, that was the end. That was really the end for you. And for my father, it was, of course, extra difficult because he was half Jewish. Half Jewish was next to his mm. being full Jew. So his mother was a Jew, and did he marry uh, a Jew as well? No, father? no, he was married. That's, that mm. saved her, her actually an awful lot. That she was, wait, that was it had a name. Um, it, I might remember. Yeah, I might come back to you, but don't worry. I might you. remember it. Um, you see, if you were married to a non-Jew. You had a much better chance. chance of, of I mean, out. it was crazy. The whole thing was crazy, but very, very, very dangerous. Yeah, and your and grandmother, your grandmother, once from once she was given the, the famous yellow star, which yeah. of course was the. She wouldn't wear it, so she never went onto the street anymore. She never went on the street because she wouldn't want to wear its star. Yeah, but you can understand, yeah. with hindsight, yeah. we can understand yeah. her anxieties in that respect. And that's another very interesting thing you say in the midst of the film. You were a teenager during this war, uh, at, at during the war. You were blissfully unaware. You were, Totally it, unaware. My sister and I, my father, was determined that we shouldn't know anything. And that was very, very important because children, when they are going to school, they always have a friend and the friend is always told something about their family. And that is really dangerous. So we knew nothing. We knew absolutely nothing. Can you imagine? And when you, then we get post-war Ian Stewart uh, coming to uh, a young sculptor, a young handsome Irish man coming and winning your heart immediately, it would seem. It was love at first sight, was it? Yeah, it was love at first sight. I remember going to the train 
to the train and looking at him from a distance. That was him. <laughs> and, and that was it. <laughs> and, and that brought you back to Ireland and that, yeah. is, that is why... That's you, right. That's why I'm here in Ireland now. His family, a hugely important family in many ways in Irish culture, you had no, you had no concept of that. As no, you were no he, was, he wasn't interested in telling me even that. I mean, I, Maud Gunn is a very important person in Ireland, or was anyway. I don't know how things are now. Mm. She I was his a, grandmother. Yeah, that was his grandmother. I have a feeling she's not as important anymore as she used to be. I remember when my daughter, when one of my daughters went to school, everybody, oh, the, the nuns said, she has the grandmother Maud gone. Hmm. She grandmother Maud gone, yeah. And did you meet her, yeah? I met her, yeah. And what sort of person did you meet when you met her? I thought she was a lovely person. Now, she was very gentle and very English. Very English, she was, as you know. Mm. And in English, in so far that she, her manners, her manners in general. And at Madam, she, Madam, she was always called by the family Madam. And in the evening, she came down to a dinner and all dressed up, very nicely dressed up and being so tall. I mean, she was six mm. foot. That made a great impression on him. That would make an impression on anybody. Yeah, of ex- course, just the, exactly. the, the sheer size of, of the, you know, that, that imposing figure yeah. that, that, that she was. Yeah. Within the film then, we, we, get that, we get that family history, Emil, mm. but we, you also very much look at what happens to uh, Omi, as you call... Oma. You, Oma, Oma, Oma yeah, is that how we yeah, said yeah. for For grandmother. Mm. Uh, Oma, as you call uh, Imogen. You look at what happened subsequent to the marriage ended with, mm. with Ian. You look at uh, what happened to her career subsequent to that. How would you describe... What happened before I ask Imogen? Well, I think it pretty it took off in many ways. You know, like she started getting a huge amount of commissions, um, and a lot of her most of her big public commissions came after the divorce. And I think um, it was interesting actually looking back through the archives because there was um, there was an interview done, I'd say in the eighties, and Imogen said very clearly that she doesn't think that she would have been able to do the work she did if she'd been married and had a man around distracting her. What changed then for you, uh, Imogen, when the divorce happened? I think I wasn't a very independent person. I really wasn't. And as long as I was married, I was not independent. I did everything. I asked Ian everything. I mean, I... I think Emil doesn't even know that how much I was, how independent, how dependent, how dependent I was. I couldn't help it. And when I was suddenly then on my own, it was it was a different situation. I had to discover myself, really. And how would you say that affected the work specifically in terms of what you were doing with the sculptures yeah. and with the carvings? Well, I think even when I was with Ian, I asked him too many questions. I asked him too much, too much. So you were looking for his opinion or his approval, were you? Yeah, even that. Approval, opinion, yeah. And 
subsequently you took your own opinion. Yeah, I had was, to. That was the one you ran with. I had to, yeah. There are very touching movements in the in the film as well, not least of which is the, the death of your daughter, Siobhan. That was terrible. Accident. But also your sister, your younger sister, who we see in those early family photographs and indeed we see her, I think, yeah. in, a, in a moment in the film as well. Um, she died ahead of you. and You were quite surprised by that, I think. That Ashling, no, no, that Siobhan. Your 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 own sister, yeah. My sister Zibille. Well, we were very close sisters, especially because I lived in Ireland and she in Germany, and we we kept always great contact. Every Sunday we telephoned each other, and it was really nice. Yeah. Well, just like sisters always are. Yeah, and as you say, at one point you you played together, you fought together. You just exactly. you, you were, you were yeah. normal. You yeah. were normal sisters. Um, if Imogen was pointing out just the the film coming coming out on on uh, RT television on on Thursday evening. Is this a first documentary for you, Emil? Because you've worked across several genres, I think, in terms of film. Um, it's not my first documentary. I'm, I actually made my first documentary about uh, nearly 20 years ago and that mm. was with I traveled to South Sudan and spent a bit of time with nomadic cattle herders during the civil war there and since then I made um, quite a few documentaries all about different subjects. Different though when it's your family I'm guessing and finally then Imogen you were saying how great that the uh, film is going on to television this week yeah. you were also mid-exhibition there's no stopping the work. No that's right well, I'm still doing things, but I can't work with my hands anymore. I'm doing drawings now, only drawings for graves and for friends also. Yeah, well, listen, it, it's absolutely lovely. But it's so nice that Emil and I, we have in one, in one, we, in yeah. two weeks, we have two interesting things going. My exhibition for myself and Emil's beautiful film, well, which I haven't seen and very curious, of course. Well, you're in for a real treat <laughs> when you see yourself in there. <laughs> I hope, uh, hope she likes it. <laughs> <laughs> Good luck with that, Emil. <laughs> That's Emil Deneen and Imogen Stewart. Delighted to have you in with us this evening, Emil and, and Imogen. Thank you for coming in. Imogen from the Heart is the title of the film. It's on RTE1 on Thursday, December the 7th, this, this coming Thursday, 10.15pm. And if you don't get it there, you can get it on the RTE player. The Thinning Veil is a music and film project that was born out of a collaboration between filmmakers Natasha Duffy and Shane O'Callaghan and the renowned composer Michael Gallen. What originated as a live event in the heart of Monaghan's Boglands of Nocatallan in October 2022 has now realised itself as an EP and experimental film that features some of Ireland's most exciting folk and trad artists and songs of the region that were lost for generations, reimagined here by Michael Gallen, composer who joins me now on the phone. I have to be careful now, Michael, that I don't start singing the praises of the boglands of Monaghan um, with no obje- with no objectivity, because um, you you certainly give us the beauty of the, the kind of the stark beauty of those places in both this film and in the music that we get. Uh, talk to me a little bit about the live event that happened on this uh, bog up and in in and around the townland of Nocatallan in North Monaghan. Hi, Sean. Yeah, it, so last year around the Samhain Festival, um, 
that collaboration sort of came into being between myself and soft production, Natasha and Shane that you mentioned. Yeah. Um, and the idea was that there would be two different manifestations, that one would be a live event that took place in the bog and that the other would be this film that I suppose would be more available, more widely available. Um, the live event was, I suppose, um, in a way evoking that experience of sitting around a campfire at Samhain or at Halloween mm. and people gathering, telling stories of the locality and sharing local music and tunes. Um, there was a beautiful sculptural piece by the artist Claire McCluskey that um, that sort of resembled the campfire. It was very, very beautiful. And both the audience and the artists sat around the fire and shared this experience together. And I suppose, you know, the theme of this project is one of this thin place that can occur between life and death, particularly at this time of year. Um, and that when a group of people gather as a circle, as a sort of circle of witness, that, you know, we can invite those spirits in and I suppose inhabit that place. Yeah, and I guess a bog land with its, you know, unsureness underfoot and that kind of uh, unlevel terrain and, and holes that you could disappear into if you if you weren't careful. I suppose it's the type of liminal space that suits perfectly the type of exploration that you wanted here. Absolutely. And I suppose as well, the ways that bogs are keepers of memory, you know, that they preserve, you know, between Tull and Ban and obviously, you know, the work of Seamus Heaney, we know an awful lot about how how bogs can Mm. hold memory and hold cultural memory. And so I suppose the bog is that space that, you know, can be both delved into and, as you say, can be a surface that you kind of that you exist upon. Um, and the theme in the film is very much one then of this solitary figure that walks out into the bog and that is minuscule in comparison to the bog and that encounters then this thin place uh, while he's out wandering. Yeah, um, it, it's, a, it's an older man. And this is based on on the, the grandfather. Is it Natasha's grandfather? Yeah, Natasha's grandfather, Barney Carroll, and, um, would have he would have footed took uh, turf out on the bog and would have been one of the last people to have a license to go out and cut turf himself. Mm. Um, and incidentally, he, he worked in St. Davenant Hospital in Monaghan and used to bring some of the residents of the hospital out two foot turf. And then that was the turf that would be burnt in, in the, the hospital. And of course, you, um, you, spoke so to us, you spoke to us about your own work in and around St. Davenant's Hospital as well. It did um, indeed. Yeah. Um, I want to listen to one of the songs, um, but maybe you'd give us a, 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 a lead into it, if you would. This is Oh Lovely Appearance of Death. Are these songs specifically, um, I suppose, indigenous to the Monaghan region that were in danger of being lost or that are, are, are on the cusp of being lost, Michael? So some of, some of the songs are, and some are more songs that are just uh, related to the mm. theme of the thin place between life and death. So um, there are some tunes that Tiernan Odinkin plays on the EP, and they're tunes that would have been collected by the guitarist John McElwain as a part of his research. He has this, I suppose, larger project where he's been unearthing tunes from around the North Monaghan mm. region, you know, quite similar to Padraig and Ulicon's work in, in the Oriel region. Um, and so that project has culminated into a gathering of tunes called Our Dear Dark Mountain with the Sky Over It. And the tunes came from that. The t- two songs that are on the EP are more so related to this theme of yeah. the encounter with the thin place. And so A Lovely Appearance of Death is actually an English Methodist hymn by Charles Wellesley, written in the 18th century. Right. And and this is your arrangement of it. Whose is the voice that's going to sing for us here, Michael? The first it's Rose fe- Connolly. 
Yes, uh, for, for, so Rose Connolly, who's a, a singer and composer from Fermanagh, um, and then um, I'm playing the piano and singing the harmony on it. All right, so here we have then, Oh Lovely Appearance of Death. Lovely Appearance of Death, a song there from Michael Gallon's project, The Thinning Veil, uh, Michael Gallon, Gallon, composer, with me on the programme this evening. There's a wonderful haunting feeling to that. And, and the film that goes along with this, Michael, at that moment in time, we see, we mentioned that we had the older man on the bog, the, the, the wanderer, if you like. But in comes this young woman who then proceeds to, to dance in front of him. And there's a real sense of almost as if he's conjured her up from another world or certainly from his past. I guess that's part of what you were trying to get here. I think so. And also the fact that she appears just at the moment when you hear the squelch of his spade down into the bog. Um, the dancer is Stephanie Keane um, and the actor is Patrick McCardle from Monaghan. And um, I, I, th- I think that really the dance symbolises that in place between life and death, but also in a way that idea of you know Bishak and Wash that the mm. this this sort of spurring of life that can occur right before death, um, and and I suppose there's the theme as well because this the tradition of going out and, and digging on the bog is one that you know rightfully is one that we're moving on from now for environmental reasons, but that this the there's a long folk tradition of people going out onto the bog and I suppose sustaining themselves through the winter through that. Um, and so the bleakness of his journey in the bog is juxtaposed then with this very colourful and vibrant dance that she does. Yeah, and as as you said, there are other tunes on the EP then as well, some of which um, are potentially or were nearly the lost tunes from from the Monaghan region. Um, but uh, it's it certainly that there's some beautiful haunting tunes on there. And thanks for joining us to tell us a little bit more about them this evening, Michael. It's a pleasure. Thanks, Sean. That's Michael Gallen there talking about The Thinning Veil, a film and music project delving into the depths of the Monaghan Boglands. And if you want to see it for yourself, that film is available on the RTE website in the culture section. Now, the two queens of pop embarked on stadium tours this year. Taylor Swift with her Eras tour and Beyonce with her Renaissance tour. Both have also released tour films. Swift's The Eras tour became the highest grossing concert movie of all time, in fact. But now comes Beyonce's Renaissance movie, which could well match her rival, though the rivalry seems tame enough as they both attended each other's film premieres and seem to be the best of buddies. The films do differ. While Swift's The Eras tour is essentially the live show experience, Renaissance gives us the creation of as much as the performance itself. Sunita Apiakarang, a part of the Jewish Sister Phoenix, has been to see the film and delighted to have Sunita in studio with me this evening. It It is what she's doing here, uh, Sunita, that, that's very interesting. It's not just, here's the concert, if you can't get to see the tour, here it is. It's what she does off the concert that's almost more exciting to my mind. 
yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I was having this discussion with my friends having seen the movie afterwards as to how do you build such a rich tapestry that accounts for both this huge uh, amount of material in terms of the visuals that are presented at the concert itself and then also capturing the vibe at the different concerts. She performed 57 shows globally. Um, there's a lot of footage there that also captures the the community of people that hmm. formed the hive, the, the beehive that is. Um, and yeah, she weaves all of that into a kind of like two two themes really. Um, there's renaissance, which we know means like rebirth and you know metamorphosis and, and that definitely speaks to her legacy and her mm. reputation. Um, and she also weaves the idea of her being propelled off of the history of neo-soul and house music and cam culture and drag culture. Um, and then there's also another kind of side which is speaking to her personal life and how her music has grown and how the beehive constructs uh, her success and, and yeah. how we all interact with that. So of course, was, often referred to as Queen Bee, you know. Exactly, and, exactly. That, that, that's why the, the beehive is, is so imp- important in, in that respect. Um you, you mentioned drag culture there. How does this, how does the drag culture and the aspects of it that are portrayed on stage, how does that feed into the, did it feed into this particular tour? Absolutely, it did. So, I mean, I think that like um, in this particular album, Renaissance, uh, it, it is a commemoration and an homage to her uncle, Uncle Johnny, um, who exposed her to house music in the like late 80s and early 90s and to the camp culture and to the opulence and the decadence of that world. And mm. for those that may not know that much about what drag culture is, that we have a lot of these documentaries like Paris is Burning, we have RuPaul's Drag Race is a, a show that's kind of commodified the idea of the performance and the putting on of yourself. And you have different categories that you have to perform to like opulence or business realness, different things like that. So the actual structure of the show, Renaissance, is broken into five acts or sections, which drag balls would be. You would have like your opening where you have a category called business and everyone has to do their little dance or their little performance piece and you know capture what the essence of that is um, and in the construct of this tour she has um, five sections so opening act renaissance are two different sections that speak to her the, the genesis of Beyonce as a youngster she sings she starts the tour with Dangerously in Love which is one of the last songs on her first album um, and then it takes you right to the end of uh, the tour and the show which uh, ends with Anointed and it, it ends with her flying on a giant life-size horse like a celestial being with all of her children and the hive yeah. praising her. Totally anointed, as yeah, it were. Yeah. Exactly, anointing all of us. We're, yeah. we're blessed by her presence. Uh, and there's other there's other um, sections as well in it called motherboard, motherboard and Opulence. And in Opulence, for instance, that's where the drag culture piece really gets to shine, where she's hired a bunch of d- dancers that actually come from that world today and they just come and do their thing. It's not usually her dance crew, whereas in other tours, she had a very fixed dance choreography group that she would have toured with throughout all of the other album cycles kind of fix people that she works with whereas this this particular tour and album she really breaks open and invites this new so you're saying in some ways that it's it's like as as if there were five acts or five parts to the overall performance that in and of itself would be enough and would be very exciting but it's it's in between those acts it were brought at one point or several points Mm. were brought Backstage, she's very keen to point out there's no sense I'm the Queen Bee and here are all the drones. <laughs> the, yeah. She, she's, she wants to praise these workers and wants absolutely. to show what they do. Yeah, absolutely. She kind of says something to the essence of she's bringing you under the hood. And again, the, the analogy of the beehive and her as mother bee and what we know about how beehives, you know, work mm. to all kind of produce the honey. She's taking you under the hood of what does it take to put a show on of this proportion, which again, 
some of the spectacles of this particular show in comparison to other ones and, and comparison to any other show really is it, it feels like one of those one in a lifetime type shows like Michael Jackson where just the spectacle the actual monolith of effort that it takes to do this is massive she's touring 57 shows she has two stages two cities ahead of her to set up for what she's performing tonight in any one of the cities she changed her outfits every night so 57 shows I think there was 52 of which she had new apparel created she tied them into the cities that she was going to so in London she had Acme brand in uh, on Juneteenth for instance which is a US celebration of the emancipation she had all black designers designing the whole crew hers mm. as well as like the crew the stage crew so like production people lighting they all have uh, clothing that actually is highlighting their presence on stage and she wants to you know flag that these people are working they're all bringing to you this huge epic tour that you're seeing so um, and to be fair to her I mean it's often the case that the person fronting the show that's all people want to see and yeah. they're only interested in Beyonce they're only interested in yeah they're interested in what she's wearing but they don't get much into the background to that yeah. she's very keen to show that she is yeah yeah, exactly and I think that um, y- you know I think that that is also a tribute to the fact that she doesn't separate herself from how the workings of all of this is like part of the show and part of the behind the scenes that you get about the personal aspect of her is how involved she is at every tier of how this tour goes. It was four years in the production, you know, so she's talking about the visual aspect and building the visuals for the actual live part. But then even on, you know, on the days she was talking to the cameraman and being like, can we get a wider fisheye angle? And they were like, no, we can't. And she's like, well, I actually Googled that and it does exist, (laughs) you know, so she's kind of like, why don't we have it already? So she has this crazy work ethic. She was working 48 days without a day off. You see her falling asleep at some stage, but like persevering through. She's got her dance rehearsals, all of these different components happening. And she's inserted herself. Like in some cases, I imagine that the specialists in the room are like, we'd really prefer for you not to insert yourself here where you're not that knowledgeable on it. But it seems that she really has a dedication towards knowing what that business is, tying mm-hmm. into what her vision is for how the visuals and the lightings and the choreography and all of these different aspects have to work. Um, and she wants to monitor that it's done to the high standard that she's. Yes, you know. she that she demands of her yeah. of herself. Yeah. But uh, as you said earlier, Sunita, we not only get that behind the scenes aspect but family is hugely important here one of her daughters did, did she dance on the as on part of the tour certainly the daughter's dancing is is part of this film yeah exactly so blue ivy Carter, her her daughter who this is not even her first uh, expose to uh, producing things or being part mm. of the entertainment business she featured on uh, the lion king album as well so she's had an early start at building accolades but um apparently she came to her mother and said that you know i want to perform and beyonce was like it's not the time and i think she would know first hand the challenges of that because what's also brought into this particular film as well as her history as a child star she started performing as early as like 11 12 um so she she's built this work ethic over 27 years um and she, i think she knows the the pressures and the challenges to that and and public opinion really kind of thwarting your confidence so um she allowed her to perform in paris i think was her debut and i actually attended that particular show in Paris so it was amazing no one expected it we thought Destiny's Child were going to come out and then mm-hmm. all of a sudden it was Blue Ivy and she performed um, a song that references you know Beyonce saying this is my bloodline so they were really intentional as to where it is that she featured in Yeah because it, it is a difficult line to tread that one I suppose because the immediate accusation is Nepo Baby you know right. those type of uh, accusations but if you refer to coming this is my bloodline of performance that, that kind of knocks in. that in the head doesn't exactly. it? Exactly yeah and she's 11 years old so it was it was, it was was devastating and disappointing and you know Beyonce remarks in her herself that she was saddened to see that people had a lot of negative feedback her performance was stellar for an 11 year old mm. performing to 80,000 people in Stade de France like 
what is comparable, you know. Um, but the, the the narrative then in the movie then becomes that, be, like Blue Ivy, very similar to her mother, becomes very steadfast that that can't be her only representation in the public sphere, performing alongside her mother, Beyonce. So she commits towards doing several rehearsals behind the scenes while they're on tour, traveling through the different cities. And then she starts to perform mm. regularly and then becomes really excellent. And finally then, un- un- Uncle Johnny, uh, yeah. How important is he within all of this? He's not actually, you know, he's a cousin, isn't he? It's, it's an actual relationship. Yeah, is it? so technically he's a cousin of Beyonce's, but he mm. is, yeah, he's two, he was two years or older, I think, than Tina Knowles, Beyonce's mother, and they grew up essentially as siblings. So, it, it, you know, Uncle Johnny became her uncle figure. Mm. And I guess the narrative, like the significance of Uncle Johnny is actually, it, it, it's very much... Um, the center point to this whole film, you know, and Renaissance and, and the drag culture piece, because she only had exposure to house um, music and the kind of drag and camp aspect of this that really frames the whole tour and frames the whole film. Um, it's also not like uh, lost to me that the launch of the movie was on December 1st, which is on uh, global AIDS. Uh, like it's, it's a commemoration of that particular mm. day. And unfortunately, she lost her her uncle to that. So this is like a this is the outlet and channel through which she's allowing people within the LGBTQ community to celebrate, to to be part of this, you know, um, freedom song, I suppose, for her uncle. You've seen the tour itself. Um, you said you attended it in Stade de France. It sounded I like did. a very, very exciting uh, performance. Yes. And now you've seen this this uh, film, this yeah. version, the concert film. Yeah. Does it live up to the tour? Do you get enough extra that if you've already seen the tour, there's more to see here? Oh, my gosh. Yes, absolutely. Because, uh, you know, obviously, depending on where you are, there's just so many components to the show from the dancers to the visuals um, to the installations and the outfits that she, you know, she's wearing. And then again, you're just kind of in wonderment at the mm. the level of work and detail that has gone into this show. Uh, I think that whether or not you're a follower of Beyonce, whether or not you're a follower of this particular album, I think that you can appreciate those aspects in and of themselves. Um, it's it's an epic of a tour and, and a, and a um, album and the visual aspect really kind of paints that picture underneath the hood through the performances themselves and really right. showcases our talent. We should, we should listen to a little bit of it before we finish up. But break my soul, yes. a good one to listen to in terms of That'll this. That'll get us chiving this evening. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> right. Okay, Sunita uh, Apia Korang, thank you so much for that uh, review of the Beyonce tour and let's have a little bit of Break My Soul. There we go. Break my soul from Beyonce and uh, Sunita Abiyakarang t- talking to us about the Renaissance concert film, which will be in cinemas uh, uh, over this coming weekend. Between them, film, filmmakers the Coen brothers have won eight Oscars as well as the Palm d'Or at the Cannes Film Festival. The men responsible for genre-defining films like Fargo, The Big Lebowski, No Country for Old Men and Oh Brother Where Arthur have not actually made a film together since 2018's The Ballad of Buster Scruggs. The word around the Hollywood campfire has been that they quietly agreed to go their separate ways. That is, until recently, when Ethan, the younger of the two, casually let slip that they are collaborating once again. And so, in anticipation of the return, we got Stephen Benedict to look at their collaborations to date. Let's have a listen to some of their very recognisable work. So we got a trooper pull someone over. We got a shooting. These folks drive by, there's a high-speed pursuit, ends here, and then this execution-type deal. Wait, wait, let me, let me explain something to you. 
I am not Mr. Lebowski. You're Mr. Lebowski. I'm the dude. Is that him? Is that Bob Fink? Let me at him. Let me put my arms around this guy. Let me hug this guy. <laughs> Look in your heart. What's the most you ever lost on a coin toss? Sir? The most you ever lost on a coin toss. You seek a great fortune. If you were nine chains, you will find a fortune. Though it would not be the fortune you seek. This is not our cat. What? Of course that's your cat. Oh my god. It's not even male. Where's its scrotum? Lewin? The uncertainty principle. It proves we can't ever really know what's going on. The uncertain world there of filmmakers Joel and Ethan Cohen. We heard among the way, uh, along the way, clips from their films Fargo, The Big Lebowski, Barton Fink, Miller's Crossing, No Country for Old Men, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou, Inside Lewin Davis and A Serious Man, all set to the soundtrack for Fargo by their constant collaborator, the composer Carter Burrell. Uh, Stephen Benedict with me in studio this evening. I mean, as you listen to that compilation, mm. you really get a sense of the, the sort of idiosyncratic worlds that they've created uh, across so many their different films. genres. Yeah. Huge, huge critical acclaim. Are they box office uh, no. worthy at all? Well, well, I think they're worthy, but they've mm. only had one mega mm. hit, and that's True Grit, which is yeah. adapted from a very successful novel by Charles Portis in 68 and was turned into a successful movie with John Wayne in 1969, which won him his Oscar as Rooster Cogburn. Rooster Cogburn. No, but no, but the thing about the Coen brothers is their budgets are very modest, so their expectations are not that demanding. They don't have to hit an absolute um, mega blockbuster box office return every single time because they keep their budgets mm. short and that actually dates from the very very uh, beginning of their their filmmaking careers uh, they established their independence back in 1984 with their very very first film and they went about financing that film in a really really unique way we've got to understand that the independent scene of American filmmaking was almost non-existent back in the early 1980s so what they did was they came up with a very novel idea of shooting a trailer and then they went with the trailer with the projector around to businesses literally knocking do- on doors walking into the offices projecting the film the trailer onto the wall and explaining what the movie was going to be, to be about they spent a year and a half doing that and they gathered together 67 private investors investing for about $10,000 each to raise the half a million that was needed oh, What's astonishing in that respect you know you're saying that they don't have great financial expectations mm. I'm guessing that it, when, when it comes to artistic expectations it's a totally different ball game and, and to what extent do you think they're you know they, they shoot in Texas they're, mm. they're from Minneapolis originally Yes um, You know why have they made that move? Is that a financial decision? Is well, that an artistic decision? Yeah, they're, they're incredibly smart and they're incredibly practically minded. Um, the reason why they shot it in Texas was because they were aware of something called the right to work rule law, which means that you didn't have to be part of the union to work in a film. And because it was a non-union picture, they could keep their costs down. And because it was their very, very first feature film, what they did was they, they entered into a, a, a contract of investment with the, with the limited partners. And the limited partners had absolutely no say in the making of the film. They had absolutely no say, no legal control over the Coen Brothers' company. 
but the the investors were free of liability. The Cohn brothers took all the unlimited liability, but they took creative freedom. And because they established that in their first film, and because that movie was a hit, they were then able to go to Hollywood and say, these are the terms that we're working on, and they've worked under those terms ever since. Very clever. And uh, I guess when you look at their background, um, respected academics, their parents, yeah. their sister became a psychiatrist. Um you can see that there was there were cle- there were clever clogs in the family for sure. Yeah. But when did film enter the equation for the two brothers? Um, from a very early age, from the 1960s, as as luck would have it, there was a local TV station in, in Minneapolis, and it was a unique TV station because they would randomly program the most strange combinations of films. So in the afternoon, you could be watching Doris Day. At dinner, you could be watching Federico Fellini, and at nine o'clock, you'd be watching The Son of Hercules. And it was that juxtaposition that the Coen brothers say allowed them to release themselves from the confines of genre expectation. And they started to mix and match things together. So you get very strange combinations and unexpected twists. So the fake execution, for example, in Miller's Crossing and the crisscross kidnapping in Fargo. And then, you know, the failed artists that you get in Barton Fink or Inside Lewin Davis. If you're going to make a movie about a musician, usually, or somebody going to Hollywood, usually it's about success, but they don't. So they twist it. So Miller's Crossing with that fantastic fake fake execution. Mm. That's a prime example of them taking the genre and turning it completely on its head. Yeah, we have a clip here from Miller's Crossing. And this was their third film. Yes. And starred, of course, Gabriel Byrne, our own Gabriel Byrne as Tom Regan. He's the right-hand man to the mob boss, Leo O'Bannon, played by Albert Finney. Now, it's not the mafia really no. that we have here. It's kind of the Murphy, I think you're calling it. Uh, yes. Uh, running rackets in the 1930s. Less of a listen. I'm not thrilled about it either, but I can't just lay down a Casper. You could do worse. Stirring up this hornet's nest won't be good for anyone and it'll mean killing. I'm not thrilled about it either, but I can't just lay down a Casper. You could do worse. You mightn't like it, but giving up any band bomb is a pretty small price to pay for peace. Business is business, and a war is going to hurt everybody. Bernie plays with fire, he's got to deal with the consequences, even if that means he gets bumped off. Sweet Jesus, Tom, that ain't even the point anymore. Casper poop rug. The day I back down from a fight, Casper's welcome to the rackets. This town and my place at the table. I didn't start you this did thing. Start it. You and Vernon. And Casper hasn't broken the rules. Bernie has, and you too, by helping him. And if that isn't enough, consider that if you make this a war, you have more to lose than Casper. Okay, but more to beat him with. Jesus, Tom. The two of us have faced worse odds. Never without reason. It helps to have one. Gabriel Byrne and Albert Finney there in a scene from Miller's Crossing, written, produced and directed by Joel and Ethan Cohen. Um, Stephen Bendix speaking just about the the Cohen's career this, this evening because we're kind of hoping that there's, mm-hmm. another, there's another collaboration on the way not too far off. Um, this idea of conscience, in fact, in... What is oh, organised crime essentially? Gabriel is, Burns' character. Then, yeah, yeah. That, that that was something. Is that something new within that kind of mafia mafia type of? Yeah, scenario? I mean the thing is, if you look at the Godfather, Michael goes in thinking he's got a conscience and he abandons it halfway mm. through the picture. But the Coen brothers have that strong running moral all the way through their films. People claim that they make movies about an amoral universe. They don't. If you look very carefully at it, if you lie, cheat, steal, or kill there is going to be a reckoning with that character. Greed and selfishness result in ruin. And it's also, it's almost up to the point of it being on a biblical level. If you think about, and it, the, the storm front that comes with these characters is either physical, moral or spiritual or um, and moral, as I said. So the thing, if you think about the, the firestorm at the end of Barton Fink, in the hotel. Yeah. Um, if you think about the crime wave ripping through no, no Country for Old Men that ruins everybody, the tornado that arrives at the end uh, ends at the arrive, sorry, at, arrives at the end of a serious man. 
Uh, you've got the giant flood at the end of Oh Brother, Where Art Thou that ruins George Clooney's aspirations. Those are biblical level of ruination. And even in Inside Lewin Davis, which is about a struggling compo- musician in the legendarily cold 1961 New York, the storm front that he faces is not weather, it's Bob Dylan. There's nothing he can do about it. <laughs> and so the thing about the Coen brothers is you've got to understand is they're not easy. They don't give their characters an, e- an easy break. They've got to earn their freedom or earn earn their happiness. Let's listen to a clip then from Inside Lewin Davis. Uh, Lewin played by Oscar Isaacs here. He's just auditioned for a big promoter played by F. Murray Abraham. I don't see a lot of money here. So that's it? We're okay. You're not green. But I don't have what, say, Troy Nelson has. You know Troy? A good kid. He's a good kid. He connects with people. Look, I'm putting together a trio, two guys and a girl singer. You're no front guy, but if you can cut that down to a goatee, stay out of the sun, we might see how your voice works with the other two. You comfortable with harmonies? No. Yes, but um, no. No, I had a partner. Uh-huh, well, that makes sense. My suggestion? Get back together. That's good advice. Thank you, Mr. Grossman. You want to be a tough nut for that for that guy. That's F. Murray Abraham there as the big promoter and uh, Oscar Isaacs playing the character of Lewin Davis who the, the, gives the, the film its title, the uh, Coen Brothers film. That was, I was asking as we were listening to that, Stephen Bendick, that was Oscar Isaacs kind of breakthrough big movie. breakthrough. I mean, yeah. now he's everywhere in some ways, isn't he? Yeah, and they spent a long time auditioning actors and that's the important thing to, to note about um, their collaborators. Mm. And uh, they work with the same people again and again and again. And we always hear about um, Roger Deakins, the director of photography. And the big joke is that they work with the same editor, Roderick Janes, who is Joel and Ethan Cohen under the pseudonym. And they work with Frances McDormand repeatedly. Yeah, she doesn't have to audition. No. <laughs> she's married to, but, which but of them is she married to again? She is. She's married to Joel. But yeah. the, thing, the one person I'd like to focus on is Ellen Chenoweth, who is their casting director. Um, the Coens are very well known for writing a character for a specific actor in mind but it's Ellen Chenoweth who I think has repeatedly helped fill out the supporting cast and her eye has been crucial to finding the the character the actor who has just one line or even one scene and that makes provides for fantastic consistency and continuity across their movies and the great thing is that the Coen brothers have never been starstruck okay and their their budgets are able to be kept down because actors go in knowing they're going to get a special movie going to be made so the likes of list these George Clooney Brad Pitt, Scarlett Johansson, Tom Hanks, Jeff Bridges, Liam Neeson, they all work for scale, knowing that it's going to be a special movie. And that brings us right back to the beginning. And that's how they've been able to maintain their autonomy and their independence, because they keep the costs low. And the box office return may, be, may only hit 35 million, but they've made a profit. Uh, do we know anything more about the potential collaboration? Or is it just, are they just teasing us? No, they're very, they're very secret. Well, I wouldn't say they're very secretive, but they don't publicise it until they're ready, which is good. So we know, we know when it's going to come out, it's going to be special. Yeah, but that's... that's Who knows much, when it is going to be? That's as much as we know uh, for the time being. That's Stephen Benedict there taking a look at the world of Ethan and Joel Cohen. Uh, what an interesting world it is indeed. But that is our lot for this Monday evening here on Arena. Leah Murphy uh, and Paula Shields were the researchers. Ollie Hamilton was the broadcast cast coordinator. Dave Gibson was on sound. And tonight's programme was produced by Kay Sheehy. Um, I'm trying to remember what, I, what we have on 
tomorrow evening's programme, but it just won't come into my head right now. Um, oh, yes, I know what we're talking about. We're talking about From Ten Till Dusk, which is a new book from uh, Christine Leach about the Royal Hibernian Academy. A book that she says is told in 12 stories. That is one of the items that we have for you on tomorrow night's arena. Talk to you then, 7 o'clock here on RT Radio 1. John Creedon will be with you here on RT Radio 1 after the 8 o'clock news.